Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for your incredible mercy and grace, Lord. We just read in our call to worship that your mercy has no end. We sing about how faithful you are and how, Lord, how much we need you. And that we are united in you, Lord Jesus. That your victory is our victory. Lord, thank you that we can gather as your people. You're the one who's ultimately gathered us because you've redeemed us. Thank you that you've given us your word and that you speak to us. Thank you that you've given us your spirit that illuminates truth to us as we read your word, Lord. And as we approach this passage, Lord, help us um, to understand, help us to uh, not just build up a bunch of head knowledge, but may uh, this knowledge transform our hearts, may it transform our actions, may it transform um, how we view our corporate worship and our responsibility um, in corporate worship, and that you've given us spiritual gifts, um, and it, it is our duty to exercise these spiritual gifts in the time of corporate worship so that we can all be built up. Um, so help us, convict us, Lord. If, if there's some of us that, that maybe are not using their spiritual gifts, can you convict them? Can you reveal to them what their gifts are? Can you help them to use it, Lord? If we need to provide space for them to use those gifts, help us to provide space. And Lord, can you just encourage us through your word? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're kind of wrapping it up for the last uh, two chapters um, or three chapters. Paul's been dealing with the issue of spiritual gifts in the church. And so he's kind of wrapping it up, talking about how we ought to exercise our spiritual gifts in the context of the corporate gathering of worship. And so last week, he kind of continually um, brought up two spiritual gifts, and he compared the gifts and talked about how these gifts should be exercised. Um, and so today, he's going to give us more um, practical insight of what these gifts should look like in the setting of corporate worship. And so I want to encourage you um, to listen to last week's message, but I'm going to give you a quick recap just so that we can all be on the same page. Um, so the two gifts that Paul kind of brought up and compared and contrast was the gift of speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. And so we said that speaking in tongues in this passage, only in 1 Corinthians 14, because the, the idea of speaking in tongues were different in Acts than in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But in this passage, speaking in tongues is a person, an individual, praising God in a language that he doesn't understand, nor his hearers understand, unless God supernaturally reveals it to them where there's an interpretation. And so we sit in this passage, 1 Corinthians 14. Um, it could refer to a, a different human language that the people in the audience or the church is not speaking, um, or it could refer to, as some people call it, a heavenly language. So in a sense, it could be, be both. And we said that spiritual gifts, um, the speaking in tongues, is not an indicator that you are a Christian or that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, because if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit that indwells in you, and not everybody has the gift of speaking in tongues. Nor is speaking in tongues a sign that you are a mature Christian. It could actually be a sign that you are an immature Christian, because who does tongues build up, the church or the individual? We said it builds up the individual. And so what's the best context that this gift must be exercised? We said the best context is, is for private prayer. It could be in corporate worship, but the only way it could be exercised in corporate worship is there must be interpretation. 
So the second gift that Paul talked about was the gift of prophecy. And we said that prophecy refers to an individual sharing with others encouraging insight that God spontaneously has revealed to that person. So when somebody is prophesying, they're not prophesying with absolute authority saying, thus says the Lord, but rather they are sharing a word that they feel like the Lord has revealed to them and they're sharing it to the church. And what was the purpose of it? The purpose of sharing that word to the church is to encourage is to strengthen or console. In other words, the idea of prophecy in this passage has nothing to do with the prediction of the future. Has nothing to do with saying, you know, this is what's going to happen next week or, or a message of doom and gloom. But really, the sole purpose of it is was to encourage and to strengthen and to console. And we said that um, there's a difference between Old Testament prophecy and what Paul is talking about. Because in Old Testament prophecy, you really didn't have to evaluate. But in New Testament prophecy here, Paul says those who are prophesy, what should the rest be doing? They should evaluate. They should see whether this is truly from the Lord. Does this line up with Scripture? Does it really, in a sense, encourage and strengthen and console? Or is it just some, someone that someone uh, made up? And the best context for that gift to be exercised is in corporate worship. And so the two principles that Paul gave us last week real quick in exercising these spiritual gifts is we should prioritize not the individual, but the building up of the church. That should be our number one priority. And the second one is that all the words that we're speaking should be intelligible words. In other words, words that people understand, because if they don't, it's basically useless. And so today... What Paul's going to do is he's going to encourage them that when they gather for corporate worship, they must continue to use their spiritual gifts, that they must build up one another, but they must do so in an orderly way. So now we're going to get to the text where Paul's going to give instructions. When somebody has the gift of tongues, how should he exercise that spiritual gift in light of corporate worship? If somebody does have the gift of prophecy, how should they exercise that gift in the setting of corporate worship? And what my goal is going to do is I feel like what Paul really is doing, he's talking about what spiritual gifts should look like in the setting of corporate worship. And I think there's a few guiding principles in our corporate worship gathering. And that's what I'm going to try to do is kind of show you some principles that Paul gives us in light of these instructions. So let's look at our passage in verse 26. It says this, What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another, a tongue, or interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the other should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first person should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophet's. Since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So, so let's stop here. If you notice, Paul's talking about when the church gathers. When the church gathers for corporate worship, 
there almost seems like there is a danger where there can be a chaotic gathering. Okay, what does Paul not want? He doesn't want a chaotic gathering. How can a chaotic gathering happen? Well, it happens when individuals show up with their own plan and with their own agenda. Because again, in verse 26 says, when each of you come together, you have a hymn, you have a teaching, you have a tongue, you have a revelation, you have an interpretation. And so all these individuals who are gathering for corporate worship are coming with their gifts and they want to exercise their gifts, but they're coming with their own agenda. And so what they're trying to do is they're all trying to exercise it with their own agenda. And at the end of the day, it ends up becoming a chaotic experience. For example, maybe one person is saying, I want to share a song. And he sings. And the other person says in his mind, yeah, I don't want to be outdone with that guy. I'm going to sing too. And he's singing while the other guy is singing. Or somebody is prophesying. And hearing this person prophesying is like, yeah, that guy prophesies too much. I'm going to show him what a real prophecy looks like. And then at the end, everybody is trying to outdo one another, interrupt one another, everything happening at once. And what do you have? Chaos. And what's the result of chaos? Everybody kind of walks out of there confused and discouraged and wondering, what in the world just happened? Paul says, yeah, we don't want that. But then the extreme opposite of a chaotic worship gathering is not necessarily a rigid worship gathering, but rather a worship gathering that is so controlled that no one can participate. So in other words, you come prepared to use your spiritual gifts, but you've been told, you know what? Y'all sit here and just watch and let the professionals take care of business. And so you're watching everybody doing their thing, and you're either trying to create your own little worship experience uh, from the experience of what you're observing, and it's now just you and the Lord, and you really don't care about anybody around you, or you're just kind of standing there with your hands in your pocket and just kind of watching everybody as a bystander, and you just walked away and saying, well, that was nice, but I guess I didn't do anything. See, the opposite of a chaotic worship service is not a rigid worship service. Because Paul says, you all need a plan. The opposite of a chaotic worship service is everybody coming, but you don't do anything. That's not a worship service. What does Paul say? Look at what Paul instructs. Look at verse 26. He says, what then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, in other words, when you come together in corporate worship, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another a tongue or interpretation. In other words, what Paul is exhorting is when you're gathering, you ought to use your spiritual gifts. And so he provides a, a list of five possible ways of how congregational members can participate. He says, one of you have a hymn. In other words, you're singing. And you're using that spiritual gift to sing, to bless others so that they could sing with you. One of you have a teaching where you're teaching the Bible. And people are listening. People are taking notes. And they're sharing the teaching with one another. One has a revelation, probably a prophecy that's meant to encourage, to strengthen or console. A tongue refers to speaking in tongues or interpretation, used, referring to interpreting those tongues. In other words, I think the guiding principles that Paul gives us and that he's writing to the church of Corinth is when you're gathering for corporate worship, all of you must participate. And so that's the very first point if you're taking notes. Like the congregation for corporate worship must come prepared to participate 
in the corporate worship. Because again, what's the opposite of a chaotic worship service where everybody's doing everything, but they're all doing their own thing? The very opposite, everybody's just bystanders. And you don't do a single thing. You just kind of watch or you try to create your own individual experience. And Paul says, no. What do you do? You come prepared with a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a prophecy. But you come prepared to participate. Second principle, I think, that we find in these verses is this, if you're taking notes, is the congregation must use their spiritual gifts in the corporate worship. In other words, what's the context of what Paul is talking about? What has he been talking about? Spiritual gifts. The gifts that this church had to hang up with was tongues and prophecy. But what Paul is saying is when you're coming together, you're all going to participate. You need to use your spiritual gifts. Because who gave you spiritual gifts? God did. What's the purpose of those spiritual gifts? To build up the church. And what happens when you don't use your spiritual gifts? The church is not being built up. All of you have a role to play in the worship gathering of this church. I don't care who you are. I don't care how gifted you think you are or how less gifted you are. You have a role to play. And that is what Paul is saying. Now, there should be a plan on how you play that role. There should be an order. But you still, you you have your part of it. You need to participate. The, The third principle is this, is the congregation must work together to build up one another, if you're taking notes. The congregation must work together to build up one another. So if the church gathers for corporate worship, they must come prepared, they must use their spiritual gifts to build up one another. Now Paul is going to draw our attention to the practical application of what it looks like for tongues and what it looks like for prophecy. Let's, let's look at the practical applications of what it looks like um, four tongues. Verse 27 says this, if anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two or at three or at with the most three each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. So if you're noticing, if everything must be done to build up the church, Paul now, in a sense, says, okay, what does that look like with exercising the gift of spiritual tongues? So, so he, he, he gives three criterias. What's the very first criteria of exercising the gifts of tongues? Look, look at verse 27. There are to be only two or at the most three. So in other words, what Paul is saying is when you gather for worship, How many people are allowed to speak in tongues? Two or at the most three during a corporate worship setting. And as I mentioned last week, the verses shows us that when a person is speaking in tongues, he's not losing control of his body. 
He's not kind of like the spirit's taking over and he loses control of his body and his mind because what does Paul say? There's, what's the very first criteria? There is a limit to how many people should be speaking in tongues during a corporate worship gathering. Two or at the most three, which means you can choose not to speak in tongues, which means you are still in control of your body. I think another principle, and this is just a little rabbit trail, um, that also, Paul's kind of limit, the first criteria, two were at the most three, kind of also puts a limit of how long a worship service should last. Well, like seriously, like I know, like, like if you grow up in the charismatic circles, which I did, worship services lasted three hours, and the saying is, we're done until the Spirit is done. But what's the instruction Paul gives? Two or three max. I'm sorry, but that's what the Bible says, which means like, and, and that's also a fallacy because it's like as if the Holy Spirit can stops working after, when, when we all depart. No, he, he never stops working. But Paul says two or three. In other words, keep your corporate worship service to, 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 to a limit here because let's just be ominous. When a service lasts for four hours, especially we have no air conditioning, which I'm preaching extra long today. I'm just kidding. <laughs> like it kind of becomes counterproductive. You're like, what in the world just happened? No, Paul says two or three most. He puts a limit. Look at the second criterion. Two or three most. Each person speaking in tongues must speak in turn. So not only should you have two or three most, so he's not saying two or three most at the same time. He says, no, two or three most during corporate worship, and they all should take turns, which again, be quiet if somebody else is doing it. You still have control of your body. And then the last one is someone must be present to interpret. In other words, if there's interpretation, great. If there's not, be quiet, sit down. Let's move on. That's, that, that's, that's what Paul says. Now, now um, he, he draws our attention to, to prophecy. And notice the similarities um, between the criteria of how to exercise tongues and prophecy. Look at verse um, 29. He says this, Two or three prophets should speak, the other should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophet, since God is not a God of disorder but of peace. So again, look at the criteria. He says two or three prophets. Now, more than likely, that's shorthand to verse 27. How many prophets should speak? Two or three at most. Again, what does Paul do? He has a limit. Because again, can you imagine everybody comes and say, I have a word, I'm going to prophesy. You know how long we'll be here having to sit and listen to you? You're already having to sit and listen to me for about 30 minutes. And then on top of it, he puts a limit. It'll be counterproductive. And then also, we see not only should there be two or three prophets, but the second criteria, while somebody is prophesying, what should everybody else be doing? They should be evaluate. They should be listening. They should be evaluating. In other words, what do they evaluate? Like, what are they hearing? Is this from the, word? Is this from the Lord? Is it, in other words, like, is it proclaiming God's word? Is it contrary to God's word? Paul, even in the, the church to Thessalonica, says in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 10 to 21, he says, don't despise prophecy. In other words, when somebody is prophesying, giving a word of encouragement, don't despise it, saying, oh, here we go again, but rather listen. He says, Test the spirits. Hold on to what is good. 
So the first criteria, two or three prophets. Second criteria, everybody else is listening and evaluating. And the third criteria is what? Take turns, one by one. In other words, you have control of your body. Let somebody speak. Let them share a word with the church. And then you go after if the Lord lays. In other words, there's, there's really no good reason uh, for prophecies to happen simultaneously, but there is two good reasons for why it should happen one by one. Look at verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that what? So that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. So why do you take turns? So that everybody can hear, they can learn, they can be encouraged. Now, Notice the criteria between tongues and prophecy, and notice the similarities between the criteria between tongues and prophecy. Two or three max, each taking turn. Why? Look at verse 33. God is not a God of disorder, but of, of peace. In other words, confusion and chaos does not characterize God. If God is the one who's given us these spiritual gifts, then the characterization of these spiritual gifts should not create chaos and confusion, but rather they should create peace. They should encourage, they should strengthen, knowing that we have peace with God. And that's what Paul says. Like I know some of us kind of, kind of um, use this verse to kind of justify rigid and order, but again, we have to understand the opposite of chaos is not necessarily rigid, but it's the opposite of chaos is nobody is participating or and nobody is doing anything. And yet, what does God call us to do? To use our spiritual gifts, to build up the body so that there can be encouragement, so that we can learn, so that we can be strengthened because God is a God of peace. Now we get to the fun part. Here's the controversial part. Are you guys ready for this? This is considered hate speech in the 21st century, so it's not my words but Paul, so they can uh, try him for hate speech. Look at the second part of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the work of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize what I write to you as the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in other tongues. But everything is to be done decently and in order. Okay, before we get to the hate part speech, notice the very first thing that, that, that Paul says. As in all the churches of the saints. So in other words, before, before Paul kind of gives his instructions on evaluating prophecy, and we'll talk more about that, Paul is saying, what I'm telling you is not unique just to the church of Corinth. The instruction and the command I'm giving you, I'm giving to all the churches of the saints. So in other words, we can't just take this piece of Scripture and say, well, he just wrote it to the church of Corinth because they really had crazy women. That does, that, that does not apply to us. No, he says, I'm giving it this instructions for all the, all the churches, all the saints. 
So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What does Paul mean about women being silent in the churches? What does he mean by that? So does that mean like we as a church are kind of breaking God's law because we had Stacy who did welcome and announcements and she read a Bible verse. We had Sarah sing up here. So does that mean like they should not participate or women should not participate in corporate worship whatsoever? What does it mean? Um, Here, one of the principles I've tried to teach you is when we interpret Scripture and there's a a verse that's weird, where do we go to to help interpret that scripture? We go to scripture. Very good. Glad you guys are listening. So I don't think Paul means that women should be quiet in the sense that they cannot pray, that cannot prophesy during church gatherings. And here's why I say that. Because Paul has already encouraged women to prophesy and to pray, but what must they wear? They must wear their head coverings, okay? I'm not making it up. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 11. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 5. So it's in the same letter he's writing this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. So in other words, he's not saying, hey, women, you should not prophesy, you should not pray, but he is saying that when you're doing that, you should have your head covered. If you remember that sermon when we talked about the covering of the heads, the covering of the head was a sign of modesty and also a sign that you were married, okay? So by you, a woman refusing to wear her head covering is refusing to submit to her husband and so refusing to say uh, that I'm married to this guy. Um, equivalency, I don't think has the same weight of it as a woman who's married and she refuses to wear her uh, wedding ring. So maybe next time when we have a woman here, we'll, we'll say, oh, okay, yeah, you're married, you're wearing your rings, that's good. But, but that's kind of like, that, 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 that's kind of very, very, very similar here. Uh, look, look at verse 13. He, again, he says, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So in other words, like a woman is going to pray, a woman is going to share God's word, but what must she wear? Her head coverings, because what does the head covering symbolize? That she's under the authority of her husband. So what's Paul speaking about in our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he says that women should be silent in the churches? I don't think Paul is speaking about prophecy, because he already said when they prophesy with head coverings. But think about this. What's the context that Paul is writing? Paul's giving instructions on prophecy of how many people should prophesy? Two or three. When everybody else is prophesying, what should everybody else be doing? Listening, evaluating. Everybody must take their turn. Okay? So Paul more than likely is talking about the evaluation of prophecy. So what he is saying is he does not think a woman should publicly evaluate the, the prophecy. In other words, when Matt is sharing a word of encouragement, people are listening, people are evaluating, and a woman who's married should not stand up and say, hey, brother Matt, I know you said this, but I think you're kind of wrong. I don't think this is lining up with God's word. What happens? 
Not only is that humiliating to Matt, but it's also humiliating to the husband that's sitting right next to the wife. Okay? And we'll talk more about that. But that's what I think it has to do. Paul's not saying a woman should not prophesy, should not share God's word, should not uh, pray, but rather she should not publicly um, evaluate these prophecies audibly, but rather should do it privately. And again, this command flies in the face of our culture. Now, this is my view. Let me give you the opposite extreme view of of, of what other people see. Uh, most people, we live in egalitarian culture. So in other words, what that means is we, the, our culture is telling us men and women are created equal and value worth dignity, which we affirm, amen to that. But culture says men and women have equal roles. And we say, no, the, the Bible says something else. But because we live in such an egalitarian culture, we read passages like this, and what's our initial reaction? That can't be. That's wrong. So what scholars do is scholars are saying, they're saying uh, verses 34 and verses 35 is not Paul's writing. In other words, the scribes inserted that in the text. What are scribes? Scribes took the, the ancient manuscripts, they duplicated it, they transcribed it. Obviously, they didn't have printers and copiers where they could copy, so they kind of duplicated with the handwriting, follow, follow, follow. And they, these, these manuscripts were distributed for all to read. So they're saying that these, these words are not Paul's original words, but were rather, later, uh, rather added in later by the scribes. And, and here's their only little bit of evidence. Because there are some manuscripts that include these verses after verse 40. So they're saying, see, some of these verses are here, but after verse 40, which means like scribes added it, Paul did not write it, so let's just take this and throw it away. Let's not deal with it because this is not in Scripture. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you one, but let me also bring my evidence. You're saying it was added, it was, it, it, in some manuscripts, it's past verse 40, not before, not before verse 40. But here's the other part that we got to look at. There is not a single Greek manuscript that does not have these verses in. They all have these verses in them. Whether some of them are before verse 40 or others are after verse 40, they're still in there. And every single manuscript. So if they are in every single manuscript, what does that mean? Paul wrote it. Paul added it. Now, could there have scribes, as they trying to make sense of the text, said, you know what, this kind of looks like a little rabbit trail, so let's write it after verse 40? Yeah, maybe. We, we can only guess why. But here's what we do know as a fact. These verses are in every single manuscript, which means... Paul has written them, and what does that mean for us? We need to read them, and we need to take them serious. We need to pay attention to them. So why must women not evaluate prophecies publicly, but rather they should do it privately? Look at the second part of verse 34. He says, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. And we've already established, well, that's not prophecy, because chapter 11, saying women is going to prophesy, but rather it's the evaluation of prophecy. But what are they supposed to do? They are, but they are to submit themselves as the law also says. In other words, he says women should be in submission. And Paul supports his phrase by the law also says. What's the law also say? 
more than, more than likely it refers to the Old Testament. In other words, Paul's already covered this relationship between a husband and wife. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What we have to understand is there is an order of creation. All of you, if you've read the creation account, what's the order? Who did God create first? He created man, and then he created woman. Did he create man for woman or woman for man? He created woman for man. Is man and woman interdependent on one another? Can they live without each other? No, they can't live without each other, but rather they're interdependent of one another. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He says, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. In other words, notice the order here. Just like there's order between the triune God, they're all three equally God, and yet we see the Son submitting to the Father, not the Father submitting to the Son. Both man and women are equal in the sense that they're image bearers, they're equal in value, dignity, and worth, but who's the head? Who's the leader? Man is, not woman. Look at verses 8 to 10. For a man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In other words, what Paul is saying is the reason why women should not publicly evaluate these prophecies because there is an order of creation. There is an order of the family. And so Paul also says, like, instead of women, does that mean women can't evaluate prophecies whatsoever? No, he's not saying that because look at, um, go back to verse, uh, chapter 14. Look at verse 35. It says this, if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it's disgrace for a woman to speak in the church. So he's not saying women should not evaluate prophecy, but rather he's saying she should not do it publicly, but rather privately with her husband. So I know for us, because we don't really experience prophecy in the evaluation of prophecy, what does that look like, and why did Paul give that instruction? Um, I cannot say with absolute confidence. I'm just kind of speculating. Um, but there is a principle that I'm going to give you. Um, more than likely, and I kind of already gave you the example, more than likely when somebody came up and shared a word of encouragement, how controversial would it be and how much shame would it breed to a woman who's married, and she's audibly kind of resisting the prophecy or saying, hey, you're wrong, I think this is this, while her husband is just sitting idly by. And that's the idea what Paul has. And here's what we have to understand here, and I think this is the principle that, if you're taking notes, will make sense uh, for us, is this. The role of a husband and wife remains intact during corporate worship. The role of a husband and wife remains intact during corporate worship. Here's what I mean by that. We as a church are considered a family, correct? Some of you older men are like the fathers of this family. What do fathers do? They lead, they shepherd, they discipline, they provide, they protect, they teach. Some of you older women are mothers in this church. What do mothers do? Do they just kind of are quiet and just sit idly by, pulling their thumbs? No. They serve. They help. They mother. Love on people. 
sometimes discipline the kids. Some of you are really young. You are the kids of the church. What do you do? You listen to your mother and your fathers in the church. Like we are a family, and what we have to understand is this, and I think it really is a challenge to all of us that when we gather as a family, when we gather for corporate worship, men, you are the head of your household. So in other words, what should you be doing in corporate gathering? You should be taking charge. You should be leading by example. Women, what do you do? You should help your husband. You're a helper to him. You submit to him. You help with the kids. And that's the idea that Paul has in our corporate worship gathering. What is one of the saddest things is, I'm just a little jab, and I'm saying it out of love, man. Our women are more biblically um, educated and more theologically sound than some of our husbands. That's not good. What should be happening is, man, you should be the, the big theologians in your family so that when something happens in the church, you can navigate your wife through it. So, so, so for example, um, let's say y'all disagree with this message whatsoever and you're like, this is heretical. Here's the way to handle it, especially for the wife. You're really angry at me right now, and I can understand with culture. Instead of you standing up and saying, hey, this is wrong, you go to your husband and say, hey, honey, am I missing something? What's happening? Is he saying something wrong? And the husband should say, well, let's look at Scripture together. Let's unpack this. Let's talk about this. And if the husband says, you know what, honey, I think you're right. I think Pastor Neil was wrong. Who should come see me? Who should lead and initiate that conversation? The wife or the husband? The husband. You should initiate that conversation and say, hey, Pastor Neil, um, my wife and I would like to sit down and talk with you about this teaching. And here's why we think you're wrong. Here's the biblical evidence. Can you help us understand this? That's how it's supposed to be done. And that is what Paul has in mind. I don't know what happened in the church of Corinth, but I know what's happening in our culture. The wives are initiating these conversations, and what are the husbands doing? They're just kind of sitting idly by and like, I don't know anything about this. I'm not that smart. And Paul is saying, in a sense, that should not be happening. During corporate worship, the role of a husband and wife still plays intact. Now, just like uh, Paul in our, in, in our culture, also in his culture, he understood that he was going to get pushed back. Paul, you're out of your mind. Look at what Paul says. In verse 36, he said, Or did the word of God originate from you? Or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I have written to you is the Lord's command. In other words, Paul knows that what he's writing is very hard. It's very controversial in their culture, even in our culture. And basically what he's giving them, he's giving them basically two rhetorical questions. He's saying, did the word of God come to you first? And did it only come to you? And the answer is, no, it didn't come to you first. I preached the gospel to you. I brought the word to you. And it did not only come to you because it's been spread throughout all the churches. 
But then one of the things he is saying is, you might think you're a prophet and you might have words from God, but let me tell you, I am an apostle and what I'm giving you is God's command. And here's the warning here. If you're going to ignore my writing, what's going to happen? Look at the text. What does Paul say? What's going to happen? God is going to ignore you. And here's another reason. I know for most of us, we don't like this teaching of the role of a husband and wife in church, and we just want to ignore it. I find it fascinating that Paul wrote it in this context. And I think the picture he has is maybe Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 21 to 23, uh, when Jesus says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And what did Jesus say? Away from me, I never knew you. And what do they say? But Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Jesus says, yeah, but you ignored my commands. I was in your Lord. And so that's a warning for us. Let's not ignore the Lord's commands. Let's see it as our good. Let's see the order of creation of the role of a husband and a wife as God's gift. This is where we have to stand firm and push against our culture. This is why we have to train our children of how God has created us. Because guess what? They're going to be swept up by our culture and have no idea what it means to be a, a godly man or a godly woman and what that looks like in corporate worship gathering. And then Paul wraps it up by just reminding them that, that they need to be eager to prophesy and not forbid speaking in tongues, but remember verse 40, everything is to be done decently and in order. So, so let's wrap it up here with application here. Here's the principles we talked about. The first one is this. The congregation, you the church, you must come prepared for corporate worship. So I think here's a practical question for you. If you know you are going to participate in corporate worship, which all of you should know by now, and all of you should be doing one way or another, what are you doing to prepare your hearts, your minds, and your body? Are you just showing up, hoping it will turn out, or are you coming prepared? Some y'all have jobs, right? Do you come prepared to go to work? You have, some of you have to wake up at four. Do you pack your lunch beforehand? Do you put your clothes out? Do you get your mind ready knowing of what you need to do, what meetings you have that week? That's the same for church. You know you're going to participate, right? How are you preparing? And, and let's talk about the husband, wife. Husbands, y'all, you, you should lead by example. You should be the one initiating the preparation, saying, guess what, guys, what's tomorrow? Sunday, what happens on Sunday? Corporate worship. What time does corporate worship start? That's not a rhetorical question. Well, what time does it start? 10.30. What time must we leave here before so we can get here on time? Wherever you live, we've got to leave here at 10.10. So kids, get your clothes ready. Get your shoes ready. What passage are we going to, what passage, Pastor, are you going to talk about next week? We're wrapping up 14, so we're going to be in 15. Why don't we, why don't we decide to read this passage? Let's, let's ask the Lord to, to maybe show himself to us. Let's pray for the worship team. Let's pray for the greeting team. Let's pray for the people that work at Ignite. Let's pray for the nursery workers. Like, there's so many ways we can prepare our hearts and our minds and our bodies 
a corporate worship gathering. And husbands, you should be leading in that. And wives, you shouldn't be sitting idly by saying, I'm not doing anything until he does it. He needs to initiate. No, maybe you can help and say, hey, honey, why don't, why don't, tomorrow is Sunday. Why don't, why don't you lead our family to get us ready? Like, how loving is that for my wife sometimes to say, hey, honey, um, you know it's Tuesday night. Tuesday night is family worship night. Did you forget? Yes, I did. Thank you so much for reminding me. Instead of saying, I can't believe he forgot it's Tuesday night. It's family worship. That's unhelpful. You know you're going to participate. Prepare your family. Men lead, wives help your husbands in leading in that area. And if they're struggling, which I'll be honest, as a husband, I struggle. Wife, what do you do? Help your husband. Don't set him up to fail. Don't watch him fail and say, I can't believe he doesn't do anything. No. Be loving. Help him. Isn't that what God created you for? If it's true that we as a congregation are going to use our spiritual gifts for corporate worship, how are you using your spiritual gifts? Each and every one of you have at least, if you're a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift. And I know for some of us, we don't know what our spiritual gift is. Then here's my advice. Just do something. You'll figure it out fast. I remember when I started off ministry, you know where I started doing ministry? I did puppet ministry inner city. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Come on. You all are laughing at me and looking at me. Is that my spiritual gift? <laughs> my shoulders were huge, by the way. <laughs> No, but I did something. I knew I wanted to do ministry, but there was no other opportunity. No, now I know no one wanted to do the puppets, so guess what I did? I did the puppets, and I did it for a whole year. And I learned after week two, it's not my giftedness, but guess what they needed? They needed somebody to do the puppets. I was available, and I did it to the best of my ability. And so my advice is just do something. Commit to it. If you don't like it, if you're not good at it, then do something else. You don't have to figure it out before you do something. Just do it and then figure it out along the way. Use your spiritual gifts in corporate worship. Maybe there's not an organized ministry for you to serve in. Because again, we can only have so many organized ministries. But maybe you can make up your own. Saying, you know what? I'm going to come at 1015. And there's no ministry for me to participate. So I'm going to walk around and ask people, how can I pray for them? And I'm going to pray for them on the spot. Well, you know what? I'm going to come early and just meet and greet people because there's really nowhere else for me to serve. I'm going to do it. Or maybe I'm going to, during the greeting, see a newcomer who's just standing there kind of weird. Like, what do I do? Do I go greet? Nah. Let, let. Maybe you're intentional saying, I'm going to go and greet. Or maybe you're hearing a baby screaming. And what are you going to do? You're going to run and say, hey, man, let me take that baby for you. You relax. I'll be right over there. Do something. I think we're done. <laughs> yeah, this, 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 it's hot. Here, here's the good news. Corporate worship is not a burden. It's a delight because here's why. Here's why we can worship God. We can worship God because God has redeemed us. He sent his son to die on the cross for us, and he has gathered us as his people to worship him. 
It is not a burden for us to carry, but it is a delight that we should be cherished. I know the culture in today, oh, it's Sunday morning, I gotta go to church. No, you don't gotta go to church. You get to go. Because Jesus has died for you. He lived the life you could not live. He died the death you were supposed to die. You were never allowed in the presence of God. And if you step foot in the presence of God without the blood of Jesus covering you, you would be annihilated. And the fact that the Lord allows you in his presence to worship him, to sit at his table, is an incredible gift of mercy and grace and love that is displayed. And that should be our attitude when it comes to corporal worship. That's why we should be eager to serve, because we are reminded that we were served by King Jesus.